You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Oh, yeah. It's Friday, and you know what that means. Uh, That means I don't work Saturday, and I don't work Sunday. And that means two days where I can spend some time with my family and think about deer hunting or elk hunting or mule deer hunting or turkey hunting or fishing or camping or hiking and do a whole bunch of crazy stuff outside except for there's an 80% chance of rain this weekend, which kind of throws uh, literally rains on my parade. But that's all right. I got other stuff I can do, like work on more podcast stuff, work on maybe some writings. I've been lacking in the writing department. It's been been over a month since I've put out a writing just because I've been focusing on this podcast so much. But anyway, it's Friday, and I don't care who you are or what you do. Fridays are awesome, unless you work like some kind of swing shift and uh, you work Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Well, I'm sorry, but you probably get more days of the week off. Uh, to hunt, maybe got four days off in a row. Anyway, I'm just babbling now because I'm so freaking jacked that I don't have to work tomorrow. Anyway, today we have an awesome podcast. And it's a hunter profile podcast. And we're talking with a gentleman named Walter Lee. And Walter is from the Southeast. He grew up in Southeast Georgia. And he moved to Florida. Now, when you think Florida... For me, I think bikinis and sand and alligators and uh, Columbia drug mafia people. But <laughs> but there's deer in Florida, and uh, today we're going to talk with Walter, and he's going to tell us a story about the biggest buck that he has ever shot and how he accessed property, how he did his scouting, and how he put trail cameras and tree stands in certain locations to... Uh, to basically get close to um, a good deer for that part of the country. And he was also successful. And, you know, he knocked on his doors. He found some property. And he, he found a pretty good piece of property. I will say that. But he did put in his hard work. And uh, I'll let Walter tell the rest of the story. But before we get into the podcast... I recently sat down with Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras, and he talked a little bit about the five-year warranty Exodus has on their trail cameras. Well, the first thing I'd say about our our five-year warranty is is that it's not one of those warranties where, unfortunately, like a lot of companies in this industry, in any industry for that matter, you call them up, you you have an issue with a product. And you kind of get the runaround about every other, you know, circumstance that could be at fault except for their product. So, you know, so many times I've called other camera companies back when I was using other products and, you know, they try to blame it on batteries or SD cards or give me the runaround about this or that. And, and it got so frustrating after a while that nobody would stand up for their products that that was a big part of what, in, what went into our five-year warranty. You know, our warranty, we like to call it a no BS warranty. So if you call us up at four years and 362 days, we're still going to take care of you no matter what. And that's our guarantee. So one is just having 
a warranty that actually means something and isn't just kind of a marketing tool was really big to us. But the reason that we're able to do that is because, uh, one, because of our direct-to-consumer model, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Two would be the fact that we build our products to last and not to just turn around to get you through another year and then you can buy more products. We build them as tools instead of novelty items like a lot of companies unfortunately are still doing. When companies are in these big box retailers, everybody's fighting for the bottom dollar. Everybody wants to try to make a, a profit margin and there's a lot of different people trying to get their money out of, out of these products. So what happens is quality ends up getting driven down. And that's the number one most important thing to us here at Exodus is putting out products that we, we're not going to lose sleep at over at night, you know, wondering if they're going to stand up to the test of time. And, and that's something we hang our hat on and we're very proud of. If you want to find out more information about Exodus trail cameras, be sure to visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com and when purchasing an Exodus trail camera online, enter the code nine fingers. That's the number nine followed by the word fingers, no spaces, and you will receive $20 off your purchase. And now let's get into this week's Hunter Profile podcast with Walter Lee of Florida. All right. On the phone with me now is Walter Lee. How you doing today, Walter? Oh, I'm doing just fine. Good deal. So uh, there's deer in Florida, huh? There, there's a couple of them. There's a couple of them. <laughs> and you shot one of them. So there are these two, yeah. them, right? Yeah, a, a blind dog finds a bone every once in a while. I only got one last year, but it was a quality deer, so I'm I'm thrilled about it. That's good. When you when you sent me a message through Facebook and you're like, I live in Florida, instantly I was like, I gotta get this guy on the show because <laughs> when people when even if you were to say, Hey, tell me a, a mediocre whitetail state nobody would even say Florida. You know what I mean? No. So, so you know, I, I just, I'm interested to hear what you have to say today about what it's like to hunt there and the story about this buck that you ended up shooting. But, uh, before we get into that story, what do you do for a living? I'm an accountant. I, uh, I work at Florida state university as an accountant sitting there and basically manage grants for them for a living. So you're now, I know you came from from Georgia, right? Yes, sir. And then you moved, and you actually work for the Florida, the the University of Florida State. Correct. So, are you a Bulldogs fan by nature? Oh yes, sir. Uh oh. Yes, sir. That's a it's a conflicted house. My wife is a diehard Seminole fan, and and I'm a I'm a Georgia Bulldog uh, by about three generations over. So it's a divided house on Saturdays. We have to play the TV schedule by, by, by a whim. <laughs> so <do you laughs> sometimes get, I get, do you get any grief at work from wearing your Georgia gear? I believe it or not, they're pretty amiable people. They, uh, you know, if I wore a, a university of Florida or a Miami, uh, uh, title, I think I'd get more grief. I, I get a little ribbon here and there, but, yeah. uh, I think the last time Georgia played Florida state, they whooped us pretty good. So they yeah. cling to that. All right. So, but yeah. On that, what brought you? I guess where did you where did you grow up in Georgia? So I grew up in southeast Georgia, uh, okay. right there. I mean, just uh, as far southeast as you can get, um, right on the coast. I I actually grew up on a small barrier island behind the what they call the Golden Isles there. So I was, I mean, smack dab on the Atlantic Ocean. And, okay. Uh, is that any from is there. that anywhere near the Cumberland Island? Okay, so you can see Cumberland Island from my house. Okay, so Cumberland yeah. Island, I from I, I've read some books, and uh, I guess that's a pretty uh, historic place. Is there what, what wild horses on that island? Yeah, yeah, there's wild horses there that were you know brought there at some point in time, long time ago, and and got away. And but it's uh, it's a tourist attraction for certain. Gotcha. All right. So what's what's first of all, what's hunting like in Southeast Georgia? Uh, terrible. It, when when you when you grow up in Southeast Georgia, you learn to stand for your expectations. I mean, you know, we have a what is some of the only natural genetics in that area, which is something a lot of people don't know is the deer in the Southeast are transplanted for the most part from other areas of the country. 
And Southeast Georgia, especially my very small sliver right there on the coast, that was one of the few native genes that didn't actually get overshot. So the deer there between the heat and the lack of agriculture were right there on the coastal plain. There's no real good food for them. We, I mean, a good size deer is about 120 to 150 pounds. That's a buck, full mature deer. And if you broke 100 inches of bone, I mean, you really, I mean, you're a heck of a hunter. You can do that two years in a row or two out of three years. You're you're almost a small legend in that area. <laughs> Your name gets in the paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, typically those people tend to stay pretty quiet because they've managed to figure out something the rest of us haven't uh, figured out. But the the numbers are there. I mean, my gosh, the amount of deer in Southeast Georgia is unreal. So you have no problem filling the tag if you want to. No, no. And in Georgia, we I, I'm not familiar with Iowa, but in Georgia, there there really isn't much of a tag. You're given a quota of 12 deer a year. Uh, two of which can be a buck, and uh, the other ten can be does, and it's all on the honor system. Wait a second. So there's no tags? <laughs> no, there's there's a, a hunter harvest record is what they call it, and it, it's without bashing the system too much. It's not a real efficient system because if you lose, say you start off the season, you shoot four deer, and you write in those four deer just so that you know the DNR or the game warden doesn't write you a ticket. You can print if you lose that. You can print another one off online, and there's no record of it. Now, moving this year, moving into this year, they've started where you have to start registering your deer via phone. But again, it's still on the honor system. If you choose not to register that deer, if you're on a piece of property, you can sneak it into your cooler. There's no real accountability there. So you don't there's have to go. You don't have deer. to go to a store and buy a tag. You just buy your license, and you're good to go. Correct. Correct. You have to have your license and your harvest record is part of that. It's a little square on there, and it's got your spots where you can tell what kind of deer it was and when you shot it. And you can shoot as many of any sex that you want. So I could literally come down to southeast Georgia and shoot 12 bucks. No, no. no. You got, you've got a two-buck limit okay. and a 10 doe limit. But if you wanted, you know, you mentioned Cumberland Island. All of those barrier islands are, are, for the most part, state state forest or national forest, and you can apply to those and and with, with great ease get into their quota hunt. And those deer don't count towards your quota. Oh. Now those deer are even smaller. I mean, a, a big deer there might be a hundred pounds. Okay. I mean, you're, you're looking at really small deer, key, key deer, pretty much. Yeah, man, that's interesting. So mm-hmm. that's nuts. I could come down. You, a guy could shoot twelve. I mean, in the county that I live in, um, based off of the number of tags, and I got my one state statewide buck tag, right? And that's mm-hmm. what I use to chase my, my target deer with. And then um, depending on the county, so the county that I live in, um, there was a certain quota, and you could only buy one tag before, let's say, September 15th, I think it was. And then everybody only gets one. And then you can go back around and buy the leftovers, but there's never any leftovers. So I get my one, do- <laughs> I get my one doe tag, and it's a pretty populated area as far as Iowa is concerned. And then the county to the south of me, I shot two does there this year, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I could go back as many times as I wanted to get doe tags uh, for mm-hmm. for that county. And you know, it's a quota again, so. Uh, you got to buy a tag and you fill it. And then when you fill it, you can go get another one. So, um, so that's how Iowa works. Now, Florida, you moved, you followed your wife to Florida for a job, right? Mm-hmm. And you're a deer hunter and you're going to deer hunt. How did you know that there was deer where you were going to be moving to? And, and what kind of research did you do once you got down there to try to find property and, and I guess, learn the deer of Florida? Oh, there was a lot of research that went into it. I went from having private acres of probably close to between the, the land that my, my family co-owned and, and just private acres in southeast Georgia. I probably had close to 2,500 acres to myself. Um, I pretty much free reign for the most part. There were some restrictions or some other hunters and uh, you know a lot of stands a lot of hang on stands and stuff like that and my first as soon as i found out we were coming here i I thought i went right to google and and looked up the national forest and the different areas here and 
at first glance, I was thrilled. I mean, there's, I think if you say within a one hour drive, I think there's over a million acres of public land right here on the panhandle. And if you're willing to drive a touch further, there's some really great opportunities uh, a little further out from there. So I initially was thrilled and kind of geared myself to hunt public land. You know, you move down to an area you don't know, you don't really expect to to have any private land connections or anything like that. And I, we didn't know anybody in this area. So I pretty much liquidated my assets to a couple trail cameras, bought a, a summit climber and really got ready to pack deer in, pack deer out. To my surprise, when I came down here, you can actually, on the majority of that land, hunt with dogs, which is fine. It's a legal form of hunting. I have no problem with that. The problem is, come regular deer season, that's kind of a conflicting issue for a steel hunter. It, you know, it, it makes it a little difficult. Right. Um, so, so Florida, Florida's a dog state? Yeah, Georgia and Florida. The difference is Georgia doesn't allow you to dog hunt on their on their state land. Okay. So, so it almost sounds like it's the Wild West out there on the Florida ground. Yeah. Kind of, kind of. The, 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 the dog hunters out here take it real serious. It's, it's as serious as, as uh, you and my passion for archery. I mean, they're they're training dogs year-round on hog hunts during the summer, and it's, it's a big deal. I, I think when we went out there, we went fishing in January, and they were deer hunting. I think we passed, I think, 25 to 30 trucks, dog trucks, that were there, and that was only on a, a track of land that maybe spanned about 1,000 acres. Right. So there's just it's a lot of people. Okay. So I I moved my focus to trying to desperately find some private land, and I went door to door, and left handwritten notes and letters on people's doors, and you know just in in desperation because I just I, you know I don't mind hunt public land, but you know you start putting that many people there, and it's almost not worth a while. And right. A week a week before the season. I got a call from two landowners who were gracious enough to let me come out there and hunt. I offered my services to keep the place up and have some stands ready for them. If they were wanting to hunt, it worked out just fine. So how, how big are the, how big are the tracks down there? You know, towards the East coast, everything try, you know, there's more people. So the tracks of land tend to be smaller. Were you, are you talking like uh 10, 15 acres or um, what were some of the, the private pieces that you got access to? Here in here in uh, Florida, yes, sir. I got access to two pieces of property. One was thirty-eight and a half acres, and the second was, I think, a hundred and twenty continuous. Both of them. Oh, that's not bad at all. No, no, it's, it's actually real, real good. Uh, the, the the smaller piece, I didn't have the time, and and there was a, a trespassing issue, so I didn't even breach that idea right. until uh, this year. I'll be hunting it. So I was, I still had, that still left me with 100, 125 acres. And this, this land is really a, a gem. The guy got a, a real gold mine, in my opinion. It's got a swamp that runs right through the middle of it. It's got mature pines with a, with a, with a good thicket in there that they feel comfortable bedding that's completely circled by the, the swamp bottom that's full of white oaks and stuff that are kind of scarce in this area because all the southeast was timbered. So right. if you can find a white oak tree, I mean, that's, that's a gold mine. Right. So, so this piece of property that you got access to had everything deer want. They got water, they got food, mm-hmm. and they got cover. Exactly. So, it, so, was, it was the, tri- the perfect setup. So what kind of pressure was on this property? Uh, or did you kind of run into a honey hole where n- there was no other hunters? I mean, were there people running dogs through there? No, no. And that, and that was the cool thing about it is, this land not only does it have the three things a deer wants most, it hadn't been hunted in about seven years. The landowner himself, he hunted it very infrequently. He was a very busy entrepreneur and he just didn't have a whole lot of time. And the it was it was one property line was up against a pretty busy road and all the surrounding acreage around it had been bought up and just sat stagnant. Right. So, you know, really no pressure whatsoever and it was kind of a shock to me because I've always kind of hunted small patches that, you know, the private land I had in Southeast Georgia, you know, were smaller patches that, you know, had a lot of dog hunters around the outside of it, made it difficult. And the, the big piece of property I had, I had other hunters. So this was really kind of me having the, the keys to a city here. Right. So when you got access to this piece of property, what was the first thing that you did? 
boots on the ground. Boots I was, ground. I, I pulled up a Google Maps, pulled, figured out the property line from what the owner had told me, and started looking at different things from wind direction, prominent wind direction here, which is a little different than back home. We have a, a dominant northwest wind here in the wintertime. So I started mapping out, just kind of eyeballing where I'd be able to hunt because I only had a week before the season to to figure it out. And the the deal that the landowner and I came to was there's a genetic that he has here he wants gone. And he's got a real big spike on the right side and then a perfect rack on the left side. And his, his deer are getting cut up, and there's a couple mature deer there that have just got patches of fur missing. And, and if you were to line two deer up facing each other, it makes perfect sense. That right side's just wrecking the other deer. So my primary goal was to repay the favor and try and get some of those deer out of there. And yeah. I got there, set up feeders. He had two two good-sized food pots. One's about an acre and a half. The other one's about five acres. And set up trail cameras and just got to walking around and finding trails. And I was wearing rubber boots and trying to keep my scent as low as possible. It was, you know, it's pretty hot down here in September. Yeah. So it was light scouting, but trying to just get an idea of where I'm going to go. So not only did you run into a piece of property that you could hunt that had a honey hole, but a deer hunter owned it and he had food plots in there too. Yeah. Yeah. They were a little out of shape. It, they hadn't been maintained, I think probably about a year or two, but there was still clover all through there and some, some real nice uh, browse for the deer that came to find out they were hitting those plots hard. I was okay. shocked. They weren't, they weren't coming to the, they were focusing much on the, the heavy acorn crop that we had that year or, any of the any of the mineral or supplements that I put out, they didn't touch it. They were out there in those fields, just filling their bellies every day. Right, that's the field. That's probably a little bit of an overstatement, but yeah, yeah. So, what? When did the? When did you move down there? And then when did the season start for you? When when did the Florida season start? So the, the Florida season started, I believe, September fourteenth, and we I moved down here January five. To of that year, 2015, to uh, start my job here and and uh, join my wife. Um, so I had about nine months. I, I had been all over pri- uh, public land scouting before I, I read the regs and found out that all the honey holes that I had found would only be good for about a month. But the, the seasons here in Florida, they they really last quite a long time. Yeah. If you're in, if you are a dedicated Florida hunter, you can hunt down on the very southern portion of the state starting August 3rd. Right. And the season up here ends by me, well, if you go just a little bit further, I think February 22nd. Okay, so that's a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and their quota system is set up much like uh, Georgia in the sense that I believe you can shoot two deer a day. Hmm. And are, yeah. are there a ton of numbers there? I mean, did you see a lot of deer on the property that you hunt? Yes, once I once I got to to, to know the property and, and kind of getting a, a feel for where their bedding areas were, I, I saw fifteen to twenty deer, uh, probably a little high. I'd say twelve to, to eighteen deer a set. That's a lot of deer. Uh, it it was it was a a lot more than I expected for that property. But you know, if you think about the circumstances and the the habitat that was there, and this guy really knew what he was doing. I mean, he really yeah. set up a, a prime hundred and twenty acres. Right. Right. That's good. All right. Mm-hmm. So you got access to this property. You put your boots on the ground. Um, you saw that it was decent, you know, a decent property, had some food plots, old food plots. And did you set up a trail camera when you went yeah, in there? I set up three of them. Okay. So you got, you got uh, three trail cameras. Was there, a, other than the trail cameras, did you see a lot of sign like uh, old rubs or uh, heavy use trails? Oh yeah, everywhere. I mean, this place is just slap covered. It, any given day, I'd have somewhere between maybe fifty to to sixty trail cam photos on those three cameras, and they were spread out pretty pretty spaced out. And and the, the thing about it was, I had deer at the same time on all three cameras, so it wasn't the same deer making a a big loop on the property. I mean, it, the, the place was just heavily heavily uh, scattered with sign rubs going back very various years and uh, very very set in stone scrapes which is something that i just didn't incur uh encounter 
in Southeast Georgia. I mean, the, the scrapes that were there when I got there the very week in September are still there today. You can still see them. I mean, these, these deer are using the same scrapes and they're very aggressive about it. Right. So obviously it's, uh, or my next question, I guess I wanted to ask you was what was the neighboring properties like, or were they heavily pressured on each side as well? So it kind of kept the deer contained to the property that you could hunt. There, there were leases on on the the all sides, but the hunting pressure was minimal. I think I heard one shot all year, and I don't think I saw a truck hardly parked on the side of the road or anything walking in. Mainly, mainly what I was surrounded by was highland of mature slash pine, so very dense underbrush, underbrush with not a whole lot of of nutritional value or steady hard mass throughout the year really the area i was sitting because of that that creek bottom running through there and that that fertile ground it really was i'm pretty much 360 degrees around a bedding area and they're all feeding out into those pines so okay so what was the terrain on this place like when you know i think 40 miles off the coast of florida i think fairly fairly flat was there any terrain features other than that creek running through there? Well, yes. So this area right here is called the Red Hills area. And okay. it is, you'll be driving down I-10 east to west, and you come across this area, and all of a sudden there's just random hills that don't seem to make any sense because you're right, we're right here on the coast. But, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, the ice the icebergs deposited a lot of soil right here. Okay. So we actually have some rolling hills, and where I'm hunting is the bottom of surrounded by i hate to call it this but kind of a ridge it's not really an embarrassing excuse for a ridge but uh the terrain is kind of rolling and, and as you come down from the the south side of the property it was just a continuous walk down but a, a very mild gradient okay okay so let's see here so you kind of had some terrain features. You had a nice creek running through the the property. You had the food. Mm-hmm. You had the all that good stuff. And when did you say your uh, season started again? I believe it was the second week of September. All right. So you had. Did you? Okay. So when the season started, did you jump right into that property, or did you wait a no. little bit? I I actually had the worst thing that could ever happen to a bow hunter happen, and that was a week before the season. I'm out there. I put out trail cameras. Um, I believe it was the night before the season. I was shooting my bow. The season opened. I was shooting my bow, and my limb failed, and my string my string jumped off the camp. And I just thought I had torqued the bow severely or something. I was excited. You know, it was the day before season, and took it to the bow shop and he puts it back on the string back on the cam and makes everything right again. I draw back and pops right back off. Oh boy. And the bottom right limb of my split limb setup was failing. So I'm stuck with a piece of prime property that I have gotten just all kinds of daylight photos of of some, some good bucks and some good cold bucks at that. And I've got the perfect entry area and I'm sitting here with a bow. And, you know, the worst part about it is we just moved. So recovering financially from that, I didn't really want to have to go out and buy a new bow. Um, my wife was very persistent about that. She's not a bow hunter, but either a combination of wanting some private, private time, but also knowing I'd be a weepy mess walking around the house for the next, you know, <laughs> year. She encouraged me to go out there and buy a new bow, and I did. So well, once I once I bought my new bow, I took it to the bow shop, and the, the, the tech was actually out on a Colorado trip, and he was the only real guy in town that I trusted. So I had to wait about two and a half, three weeks before I could actually hunt. So that puts you into late October or mid-October? Mid-October, yeah. Okay. So the first, so this first is, portion of October. So, so we're going to have a real quick five-minute uh, side conversation here. Really sure. quick, I want you to tell me what bow you decided to sh- uh, choose to shoot and why you uh, – chose that bow because I, you know, I also do, do the bow reviews and the gear podcast as well. So sure. what, uh, what bow did you decide to go with and why did you decide to go with that bow? I went with a 2014 bear anarchy HC. It's a, it's a shadow black series, all blacked out. Um, 
I was wanting to start using ground blast, so I wanted to black out. And I, I got that bow mainly because it had a really long axle-to-axle and a very forgiving brace height. I really liked the idea of the dual spring dampeners because the bow I had before, I had to add a spring dampener to it, and I really felt the difference that it made. Yeah. And upon shooting this bow, I mean, this thing is just incredible. It was one of those things I had shot a Hoyt, I went and shot a Prime, I shot a, a variety of bows, but for the money, I could not find one that drew as smoothly as it did. At think drawing 60 pounds feels like 45. I've actually, I'm a fan of being able to draw lesser pounds smoothly. I'm back up to 70 pounds now and don't feel it in my shoulder at all. It's got roller guards, uh, roller balls on the, on the guard, so it's just a real smooth draw. The, the, the back, back, uh, the back wall is just phenomenal. Okay. And it just shoots flat. I love it. It's a great bow. I, I drew it back once and, and let the trigger go, and I knew it was it was the bow I was walking home with. Nice. So mm-hmm. there's that. So did you have to get a new arrest and arrows and all that stuff, or did you just switch all that stuff over from your old bow? No, part of the arrangement of buying a new bow was also make do with the accessories that I had, even though they were old. She. <laughs> I had already spent enough money on the boat for that season, so I, I, I moved everything that I had over to it and uh, just tuned it in, uh, sighted it in as quickly as, I, as humanly possible and uh, paper tuned it and the whole deal going back. And I think I had that done in about two nights. I was up real late trying to get it done inside our house. Nice. All right, so your bow's ready. Uh, you're ready to start hunting. Do you remember the very first day that you – um, got to hunt that property. And I guess, tell me what was actually, we're going to back up because I take it, you know, you mentioned you were running trail cameras. Mm-hmm. What, what showed up on your trail cameras that got you excited about this property? Well, I got one photo of just an absolute stud eight point and, and keep in mind my definition of a stud eight point is nothing like, uh, what they have in Iowa, but we're looking at a 15 inch spread. He had about six inch brow tines and, I think the deer probably could go Pope and Young. Um, being conservative, I think it's at least 125 inches. I got one one photo of him right at 1 o'clock in the, in the morning, but then I got just a a whole variety of cold bucks with that messed up genetic or three old eight points that were obviously well past their prime and not going to make it to to contribute to the, the, the genetic pool there. And so I had, I'd say about six or seven bucks and daylight hours coming out at 9 a.m., 11, 1, 2, 5, and 6. I mean, they were just, it was almost about, the pattern for all the deer was about every two hours they were coming through that area. Okay. So I knew I was right there on the core area of some of the other beds because it was it was almost 90, the high, the high that first hunt that I hit the woods, the high was 91 degrees, and that was the, I think midway through, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's October. That's that's the first week of October. It was 91 degrees, and the humidity down here is unreal. That's oh, what really yeah. gets you. I tell you what, I sweat my balls off walking to the tree stand in about <laughs> 60 degree weather. So <laughs> I would be <laughs> I would be dropping pounds if I was oh, hunting in Florida. I'm the same way. I mean, you you give me the perfect hunting day. I mean, I'm. I'm looking for something around, you know, 25 to 30 degrees and, uh, you know, re- real cold conditions. If it gets the best, you know, 60 degrees outside, I don't even really want to be outside. I start getting hot. So being out there with a high of 91 that day was just brutal. There's You're, you're playing the wind. There is no scent control. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. All right. Mm-hmm. So you started getting some pictures of some of these. Not only did you get the big one, but did the deer you ended up shooting, did you get any pictures of him right away? No, I do not believe he was using that area, the 120 acres. I mean, granted, he could have been there, and I just didn't get a photo of him. But I didn't get any photos of him until the day before I shot him, actually. Okay. okay. And he and two other really big bucks showed up, and it was it was interesting. I had been seeing these younger deer that I couldn't identify if they were coal or not. And for about a week, I had been seeing them. The next week, they disappeared. And I thought to myself, that's kind of funny. They've been they've been running around daylight hours. For them to disappear like that with the doe still here, that's odd. And sure enough, these these two or three big boys showed up. All right. So did you 
I mean, what was your game plan going into that season as far as stand locations? I mean, did you set up some observation stands first, or did you end up just kind of winging it and, and jumping in close to where that, that marsh area was? Because it was mid-October, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, is what's the, what's the rut times down there? Well, the rut time kind of varies down here. It was interesting. You know, I, in southeast Georgia, we have a September rut. A September? I mean, by the time, yeah, l- late September. You're looking at pre-rut is the third week of September. The rut is done, for the most part, by the second week of October. I mean, it's incredibly wow. early in the season. Yes. So, coming here, I, was, I started talking to people and bumping shoulders, and, you know, nobody really wants to say much, but I kept hearing that this was more of a, a November-style, Thanksgiving-style genetic here, because bear in mind, these deer were brought from a different part. I think the deer here were brought from Texas and, and Illinois. Okay. And so I, 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 a lot of my research for that kind of came from rut reports in that area and what people expected from there. And I, I didn't set up any observation stands. I actually was getting a lot of good daylight photos and from hunting the, the heat of southeast Georgia where, you know, the opener, it's nothing for it to be up in the 90s again, the bow opener. Yeah. I knew that if I was going to catch a buck in the daylight hours, I needed to be up close, hugging hugging some real cool uh, swamp bottom type area. So that that was I just carried that tradition right on over because I figured, regardless of the rut, they're going to find some area that's cool, and that's where I was getting the daylight photos. So I actually was back in that that swampy area, you know, during the the first portion of that season, and I it was like a switch turned off. I didn't get any I didn't have any real decent sightings. I think it had they were starting to hit that October lull. They were starting to kind of change their patterns up a little bit and and uh, it was a really uneventful season for October. Uh, the season of part of October was uneventful right. Okay. So then was there a time where the trail camera started heating up or how many what was your hunting schedule like? I mean were you were you doing just the weekends because of work, or were you able to get out after work some afternoons? No, I, unfortunately, work was just far enough away from where I wanted to hunt. I couldn't get there and, and feel like I was going to not bust the deer in the evenings. About late October, I, I was hunting only weekends, and about, I'd say right about Halloween, I started seeing, I, I, by Halloween, I swapped, and I got out of the, 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 the swampy area, and I went to an observation uh, stand that's probably what you'd call it on the north side of, of, uh, the big plot. Yeah. And just thought, you know, there's some good trails out there. Let's see if I can't just identify what's moving. And that day started the double digit sites. I mean, it was just deer after deer, small buck after small buck. And some of the cold bucks came out, but they were way too far. And, uh, that was all late October and come, the first week of November is when it really fired up. I mean, they were, they started chasing the does and it was uh, remarkable. I had never experienced something quite like that. So you, needless to say, you were pretty jacked about, about, I mean, you were going out, you were seeing tons of, you know, tons of uh, deer. You knew that, I mean, did you have pretty high expectations or were you still kind of in a, I mean, did you, what was your goal going into the season? I know you, your landowner says, "Hey, you need to uh, if you get the opportunity, you need to take out a couple of those uh, poor genetic bucks." But I mean, you knew that there was some other big dogs in there. Was your goal to maybe wait and get a crack at one of those big dogs, or was it first deer that walks by that meets your criteria is going down? Well, my, my primary goal every season is just to spend as much time in the woods as I possibly can. And if I can manage to do that, to me, it's a trophy season. But right. uh, absolutely, to answer your last question, absolutely not. My, my first and foremost goal was to repay the favor to the landowner that had uh, given me, you know, the access rights. And if a cold buck came by and there was a, a booner behind him, I was going to shoot the cold buck. Uh, that was the, what I felt like was the right thing to do. But in the same breath, if a booner walked out and I didn't see a cold buck behind him, the booner would have got shot. Right. And that's ultimately what ended up happening. Right. It wasn't a booner, but. Right. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the day that you ended up killing the buck? I mean, did you have any, did you have any sightings of this buck before you killed him or was it, okay, you got a trail camera picture of him. Let's go hunt him. He's dead. 
or did you have a couple encounters with him, play cat and mouse for a while? No, it was it was really I was watching all these deer come through the field, and my my primary goal of being back in that thick swamp wasn't working. So I was seeing sightings, and I thought to myself, you know, as the the rut starts to pick up, the bucks are going to start chasing these these does. And even though the field was probably say 160 yards across, I, I would obviously not. And I was on very northern tip, uh, tip of this. It was you know an oval shaped field. I wouldn't have been able to kill the deer. But my main goal was. Can I just identify where these deer are coming from? Where, what part of the field are they using? Because there was just trails coming in and out of all over the field. And I went in one the, the weekend before I shot my buck, and there was a scrape in, in the in, on the side of the plot that was just I described it as ungodly. I mean, it was it was three and a half to four and a half feet wide, and was about six inches deep, and it was just tore slap up. And they were about three others that were close to that in that close proximity on the edge of that field. So I knew I was going to see a buck before too long. And if I could figure out where he was coming from, I would wait till the wind was right and I'd jump out of that side of the field. You know, come in, go inside the timber, maybe 60, 80 yards, set off the side of the trail and, and ambush him that way. And uh, so I, that was my intent coming in. I had never seen this buck before. Matter of fact, I, I didn't even know that I had the trail camera photos of the, de- of the morning of right before I shot him in the field. And, or the, the two days prior that he had been hitting that field. So it was sheer blind luck that this buck managed to, to come into open sight or a lot of sight. Yeah, yeah. All right. So then, uh, so you, I mean, you saw him. The biggest buck I take it you've ever seen? Oh, no. No, no. I've seen, I've seen some, my, my family lives up in North Georgia now, and they've got some really, really quality bucks up there. And I had, so, property that they have up there i've seen a couple that probably pushing 150 inches easily okay um, all right i just never never sealed the deal on a deer that big right so this is but you knew that if you had the opportunity at this buck he was going to be your biggest buck oh yes yeah. yes the moment i moment i laid eyes on him with the binoculars i didn't even count points i didn't examine spread i just saw enough bone that i knew he was uh for this area a shooter Right, just it, and that in body size. All right, so you pull up your binoculars, you see him. He's a shooter. What happens next? Well, the the I was actually about to get out of the stand. Uh, the wind this, this morning was a terrible morning. I was beyond discouraged because I got there late, climbed up, and as I climbed up, something big walked right past my stand. I could see him move. I could. It was just early enough that I couldn't. Uh, make out what he was and he winded me and took off and I thought for sure my hunt was over and then the wind shifted and was blowing smack dab out into the middle of this field just to the just to the left side of my view and that's where I really expected the deer to be coming from and on top of all of that it was supposed to be a low of 35 and it never broke 55 degrees I mean it was just it was so disappointing and so disheartening I'm sitting there thinking I've got to get out of this area or I'm going to blow uh whatever is making those scrapes, whatever's hitting the scrapes, I'm going to blow my shot at it. Yeah. So I texted my wife at 845 and said, I'm getting out the stand. I'm coming home and I'm literally lowering my bow from the the stand. And I see movement on the far side of the field. And I just look up and here come four does in a dead sprint running across this field. I mean, just looking. Coming straight and at And I thought, dead right at me, man. Yeah. And I don't care how many, I've killed many a deer with the bow and, when a deer started coming out like that right at you, you know, you know something cool was about to happen. And, and the blood started going, and I instinctively pulled my bow back up, and they're about 80 yards out. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, maybe, you know, if they stick to the right side of the field and they come on down, maybe they'll bring something by. And sure enough, they come right up my center. And I'm thinking, golly, I'm, I got to get out of the stand. And just about the time I'm about to lower my bow again, I see movement behind them. And it just didn't sit right with me. It wasn't another doe, and I look up. And I see antlers. And I, that's when I threw up the binoculars and saw him. And he had his nose to the ground, and he was just running right after those does. I mean, he he was breathing hard and just running. When I say running, really running. It was it was quite awesome. All right. So, you know, he's dogging some does. Did you call? Did you sit tight? What happened? Well, I, I sat. I sat there for a moment because I thought surely he's gonna he's gonna win me and and it's they're gonna win me or he they're gonna take him off in the other direction and 
there's just no point in even getting my hopes up. And he crossed across the field. He came from being right up downwind of me, across across the field, and started kind of going where my scent wasn't going to be. And I thought, man, you know, I might have an opportunity at this joker. He hasn't, he nor the does have noticed I'm here. And so I got out of grunt tube and, and grunted once. I mean, one light grunt. And he heard that and looked right at me. And I, I, I panicked. I didn't know if I needed to grunt again or what. I did. When I did, I thought surely he was going to come down the trail. The easy, the path, the least resistance to me would have been downwind again. And I grunted. He comes running down the, the only place he could have and not smelled me. Running right through brush, he was not tolerating it. He he was obviously the buck that was dominating that area without maybe one other buck. Uh, he had broken off his brow tines, uh, having fought one of those bucks there. And he comes up the right side, and, and at this point, I'm I'm about to, you know, fall out the stand. And he goes behind a, a, a thicket, and I thought, okay, you got to settle this down. Quit thinking about the horns. He's just another doe. And, and, okay, you got your release on. He's going to come out. You need to draw when you start to see movement. So be at 25 yards. And I really got my heart rate going, you know, settled down. And he comes bolting out of the brush and stops at the base of my stand at 11 yards. Broadside. Perfect broadside. And I, I hit him a little far back. We got a perfect pass through. He didn't. 30 yards and stopped and looked back and I thought, you know, did I miss? I sounded like I, I, I thought I hit him. I see the blood on the arrow and then he started to do that 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 shaky lead wobble and sure enough, he fell right there within sight. Um, and it was a good thing he did because I got a terrible blood control. I would have, I, I would have had to really brush bust that and found that, that buck. Yeah. So you you knew you hit him. What was going through your head? I mean, you just had released an arrow on the biggest buck that you've ever released an arrow on. And uh, what uh, what was going through your head? Trying to keep from breathing and so I could listen. I, naturally, I thought he was going to go back into the swamp, and uh, I was going to want to hear to see if he, if he crashed. So I don't, I don't think I took a breath until I saw him start to, to, to shake. I, I knew I, I hadn't hit him right, and I was immediately starting to kind of feel a little bit of panic. Um, so I, I was just, I froze dead solid and I, I all but closed my eyes just to listen to him crash through the woods and he stopped in the middle of the field. He stopped at 50 and I, I, I almost thought for a second, man, you, you either not hit this deer as you thought you did, or you, you might be able to slip, slip another arrow into him if, if he turns around and comes back by. Cause I have shot a deer, I've shot a deer and missed and, and, and grunted them back in and, and ended up killing that deer. But I didn't move. I just sat there and stared at him and, 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 prayed for him to go ahead and fall over because I and I was just you tore up a I was little bit. up at that point in time. Yeah. All right. So did you and did you see him fall over? Oh yeah. He fell right there in the field fifty yards from me. Perfect. So yeah, it was and that's something every I think every bow hunter dreams about of being able to shoot an animal and watch it expire within, you know, moments. I think it felt like an eternity, but it only took about five five six seconds from the shot till he fell over and, and uh I was calling calling my wife and my dad and everybody. So when you this was a morning hunt, so you you knew you had plenty of camera light or, or light left. When you walked up on him for the first time and was able to touch and feel him, what was going through your head? Man, I was I just I re- realized every step I got closer to the deer, I had to sit in the stand for probably a good ten minutes because it was climber. I I didn't feel confident in my knees not to, to do something stupid or, or fall, you know, naturally I had my safety harness on, but I just, I, I had to calm myself down. But as I walked up, every step I got closer, he was a bigger buck than I thought he was. And I just, man, it, that was, you know, that was the first, I would say, real quality buck, I mean, you know, that you could get off the coast. And this is 10 years in the making at that point in time. Um, right. I was, I was on cloud nine. This is blessed, truly blessed to, to, to have encountered such an animal and, and, and managed to harvest them so efficiently and so so quickly, you know, that, that's my my goal and why I practice all summer long. So to, to watch all that connect and the, and the stress and the late nights of trying to figure out how to be able to not only fill the freezer but pursue my passion to see that success land right there in front of me. It was the only the only thing that could have made it any better would have been had my dad been there. Um, but, you know, it, circumstances be that it was, you know, yeah. 
I was just overwhelmed with, with happiness. Right. Just like anybody would be. What did your buck end up scoring? Did you score him? Gross, gross 104. Had he had his brow pound, he would have, you know, inched up a little bit further, but he, he gross 104. Okay. Nice. So you were yeah, jacked. Yeah. You're pumped up. Um, I guess I, congratulations, first of all. And second of I, all, you know, this, I, I love uh, talking with you today. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing your story. It was my pleasure. I'm glad to be out you know, talking to somebody who can appreciate it. You know, I, my wife's great and tolerates me, but she can't quite appreciate the, the satisfaction and the story behind it. I'm just glad uh, maybe other people can enjoy it as well. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you very much and have a good one. You too, bud. And that brings us to the end of this week, the end of this podcast. Uh, hopefully you guys found these three podcast this week's enjoyable and you got some good information out of the uh, upwind podcast that we did now looking forward to next week we have another awesome lineup we're going to be talking with tim newman he is a wildlife biologist that works for analogics we're going to be talking about uh, their product lineup and how their products are different than other minerals that are on the on the market. He's also going to get into a little bit about deer biology, some disease, and uh, things that maybe the average hunter can do to help benefit their herd health. We're also going to be talking with Melissa Bachman. You may know her from her Deadly Passion television show that she does on the Sportsman's Channel. Looking forward to that one as well. And then we're going to have another Hunter Profile podcast with uh, a quote unquote average Joe. And, uh, That'll bring us to the end of next week. So another awesome lineup for next week. And uh, again, thank you guys for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Thank you for tuning in and following on all the social media avenues. Um, be sure to go and visit exodusoutdoorgear.com and take a look at their trail cameras. I want to thank them for uh, you know participating in this show. And then uh, thanks to my wife who allows me to sit in this dungeon I call the basement and uh, talking to this microphone to you guys. Again, if you're in a tree and you're hunting, make sure you wear your damn safety harness and have a good weekend.